0: Hello, everyone. This is Andrew Harreth. You're listening to Andrew and Andrew on Texas Criminal Defense. As always, I'm joined by my co-host, Andrew Decker. And in episode five, uh, we're interviewing Michael Tiger. And Andrew, I mean, the, this guy uh, really just kind of stresses, I think, for attorneys, the importance of just constantly be reading. You need to be reading books after book after book. Yeah, pay
1: attention to how many books he mentions in the This It's a short interview, 20, 25 minutes. It's our shortest interview so far. He talks about several books. Before we started, he was talking about other books. He was writing a book as we were there. He's just published a book. He's reading and writing. He also blogs uh, on a regular basis. He's reading and writing all the
0: time. Hello, everyone. This is Andrew Harith. I'm here with Andrew Decker. This is uh, Andrew and Andrew on Texas Criminal Defense. Thanks for joining our podcast today, Andrew. What's going on, man? How you doing?
1: Well, I'm doing great. We have a huge opportunity today. Uh, we're getting to interview Michael Tiger. Um, uh, just by chance, he's he's in San Antonio with us uh, for the Texas Criminal Defense Lawyers Association meeting, um, and. Uh, was able to get an introduction and, and steal a few minutes of his time. And thank you so much for allowing us to come and visit with you. Well,
2: thank you for asking me. I mean, and thank TCDLA for inviting me down here. This is the, the, the front lines, Texas, the front line of the battle for fairness in the criminal law system.
1: <laughs> we agree, we have to do it every day. So, Mr. Tiger, you've taught at UCLA and U- University of Texas where my son's currently a senior, not in law, but uh, in biochemistry, Uh, Washington College of Law, and of course, you're currently listed as a professor emeritus at the Duke School of Law. Uh, You're a a devoted blogger, um, and and I've been reading a lot of your blogs the last couple of days. Um, And what I found was, I'm a former United Methodist minister, and so when I read some of your stuff, I found myself actually going back to uh, a, a piece out of the liturgy that says uh, to resist evil, injustice, and oppression in whatever form they present themselves. And for it, reading it, I felt a, a sense of conviction, almost a religious conviction. It may not be religious in your terms, but where does your conviction, where does that drive come from?
2: It's it's a story that began when I was in high school. Um, we had a, a bookstore in our town, Reseda, Uh, California and when I was about 11 or 12 I told my father that I thought I wanted to be a lawyer and he went in his in the bedroom and brought back the biography of Clarence Darrow and he said well if you want to be a lawyer you're gonna be one like this he was for the people my father had eight grades of school and he was a union leader Um, so I get um I started thinking about that. And our local bookstore sold me the book, Darrow's Autobiography, and so on. And then in my senior year, I read Arthur Kessler's book, Reflections on Hanging, uh, which was a study of capital punishment. We had a big debate going on in California about the Chessman case and other cases of death row. And I read that book from end to end.
1: As a senior in high school. As a
2: senior in high school. And Kessler, of course, is a magnificent writer. But what I came away with, not only was the injustice of the imposition of the death penalty, but the role of those brave advocates who had tried these cases. And then when I got out of, of uh, college, I worked for, for Pacifica Radio. I would be their European correspondent. And I appeared on a platform speaking with Sidney Silverman, a member of parliament who introduced the abolition bill in the United Kingdom. So. That's the, the beginning, is sort of the practical step-by-step approach to what lawyers can do. And I thought, well, damn, that's pretty good. <laughs> I, I mean, I, a journalist, I get to report on things, and you, you do. Or maybe a historian, I could write a Ph.D. thesis. But if I went to law school, I'd have a ticket to the show. Right. And so I went to law school.
0: Yeah,
1: that, that would definitely do
2: it.
0: Mr. Tiger, the, you know, you've represented some, some really notorious cases, um, uh, famous fact patterns, but like every lawyer, you've got the everyday cases that, that you're working on um, day in and day out in, in courtrooms uh, across the nation. Which is harder on you, um, you know, as a person, uh, uh, the, the big case versus the small case, um, and which is harder to defend?
2: they're all the same in one important respect. To be sure, a long trial, the last court-appointed trial I was in was nine months, and uh, that really caused some health problems for me. Uh, Litigation is a team sport. Uh, You've got to have a support group for whom you have respect and who respect you to be working together on these things. But in this sense, every case is the same. Uh, Piero Calamandre, who wrote a book called uh, um, Eulogy of Judges, So you take two painters and you put them in a field, each in front of their own easel, and you come back an hour later and you look at the two very different paintings that they painted. Does that mean that one of them has falsified the reality? What we're doing when we take on a case is to seek an impression, an alternative reality that we can present to the trier of fact. We may talk about reasonable doubt, but we've got to present a plausible alternative reality for the jurors to get hold of. That means that we've got to sit with a client. Many of our clients have never had anybody sit down with them and listen to what they have to say in the detail and depth that we knew. We deploy that rapport with the client that gets them to be candid with us. We deploy a little skepticism. We have a crap detector, just in case, because there may be things we're told uh, in in all good faith. The nature of memory, as Wordsworth said, is what we half remember and half create. That's the Mm -hmm. nature of memory. And so we need things we're going to check out. We're going to get witnesses. So I'm drawn back to what Edward Bennett Williams' uh, story that he used to tell uh, as a young lawyer, he's staggering into General Sessions Court, which is now the superior court of the district, with a bunch of law books under his arms because they didn't have Xerox when he started practicing. <laughs> and when the old courthouse obituary uh, looked at him and said, throw away those books, son. Get yourself a witness. Um, so all cases are the same. we got to get ourselves a witness.
1: Right. I actually had a case where um, uh, a young man was charged with Uh, aggravated uh, assault on a woman, uh, second-degree felony, 2 to 20 here Mm -hmm. in Texas, and got hired on just a few days after the alleged assault, got an investigator. We had more witness statements four days after the event than the police did, eventually got the charges not only dismissed to a misdemeanor, but eventually those were dismissed completely, and the DA of a rural county called me up and said, any time he wants it expunged, we'll do it immediately. The, 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 the police did such poor work that sitting down with him and getting that investigator, finding those witnesses, completely changed the case, and the, he, was, he was completely innocent. Thankfully, we didn't end up having to go to trial no, on
2: it. This, this indeed is the issue. Back in the, whenever it was, the late 70s, Ron Dellums was, was a congressman from California, African-American congressman. And we got word that Ed Meese, the Attorney General, was going to go on national television at 6 o'clock and charge that Dellums was dealing dope out of his uh, congressional office. We put an investigator on the street, and we had the rebuttal to that charge before Meese went on the air. I stepped out of uh, Dellums' office at 5 o'clock and confronted this bevy of television reporters and said, I'm Michael Tiger, I represent Ronald Dellums. We deny the allegations and we despise the alligators.
0: Uh, Beautiful. Yeah, that actually um, sounds a lot like, um, I think a popular tactic these days is developing psychodrama in the courtroom uh, where you you really go in depth with your client's story, um, maybe the reasons or motives for some of the witnesses to lie and, and really try to paint a picture for the juror or the trier of fact, um, and not just, you know, the normal regular cross-examination of, a, of a, you know, a police officer, but, but really deeply delve into the details, put them on the scene, paint the picture for uh, the jury. Have you, in your career, uh, developed a, a tactic like that, like uh, uh, painting the picture? How do you do that? With a, with a jury or in front of a judge when you're when you're crossing or, or directing a witness? You, you can
2: look at the opening statements that Ron Woods and I, and we split opening statements, did in the Terry Lynn Nichols case. We laid out for the jury the results of our investigation. And we, of course, had to begin by getting their attention. Remember, the prosecution's gone first. And now those jurors are looking over at your client saying, man, that's a bad person, maybe. So we always, you know, we start where we always start. We say, members of the jury, can you see my hand? You can't see my hand. Not until I turned it over and showed you both sides. Can you see my hand? Now let's talk. And we have, and we're looking at those jurors in the eye and we're remembering that communication is a two-way thing. It's the speaker and the hearer. We're communicating with those jurors that have been selected we are trying to understand as best we can, if we get good, Vordire you say here, We the rest of us, rest of us says, why dear, because we speak French and y'all don't. Um, <laughs> and um, trying, to, trying to communicate with those folks about things that they care about. And here's a little side thing for you. Somebody asked me the other day, well, what are you looking for in, in, in Vordire? I said, well, um, I'm looking for how, how this person decides important questions. Well, what do you mean? I said, well, I have a high school teacher. As in charge of study hall one period. And I said, well, two kids get in a fight in study hall. She said, yeah. She says, well, how do you decide who's right and who's wrong? Who did what? I want to know how that person decides. A Human resources person, how do you decide who to fire and who's not? A doctor, how do you decide? In short, I want to know what kind of skills they bring to the process of decision. And what I'm looking for is to try to see what kinds of prejudices they bring to that process as well. What biases they brought into the courtroom with them, because they all, because everybody has them.
1: OK, so um, one of the questions uh, that we asked uh, Jerry a few days ago, and I'm going to ask you, you're at a point where you could retire, not continue to blog, not continue to speak. You're, you, We came in this morning. You said, I'm working on writing a new book. You could, you could go paint pictures of, of wheat fields if you wanted to. So what is, it, what is it that gives you the fire to put your pants on every morning and come and engage in this kind of activity? Well,
2: um, I probably could not really paint a very good picture of a wheat field. I mean, let's just, let's just be clear about that. Um, I learned how to do this. I chose this way of living. Now, having been a radio broadcaster, I learned something about asking questions. Um, I, I care about this thing, this thing that this calls itself justice. I mean, we have a department that calls itself justice. That's bullshit. Everybody knows, but it calls itself that. Um, I'm, I enjoyed it. Okay, that's the first thing. I started out liking it. I got a not guilty in the first case I ever tried, and I thought, well, damn, this, this is pretty good. Jimmy Robertson, who was that later a justice of the Mississippi Supreme Court, was a business lawyer in the Delta. He said, "I got appointed to a case, and I learned there's no pleasure in life like cheating the hangman." So, um, but I think what you said is a little is a little bit off. I do blog about things, write blog. I do write books. I can, ha- I will, ha- be involved in some cases. But y'all know as well as I do that this is not just a team sport; it's arduous, physical, and mental work. And a guy my age, and I'm now seventy-eight has got to recognize that just inevitably, physically and mentally, I, I may think I've got all that I had when I was 30. But realistically, maybe I don't. And if if I don't have, so I would not take on a jury trial in a capital case right now. I would feel maybe confident to do an appellate argument. And it's not that I don't think I could do it. But what if I made a mistake mm. in a capital case? Yeah. To whom would I address my regrets? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, that that's I stole that from Robespierre, the uh, uh, the vain, the the sterile regrets we may accord to vain shadows and insensible ashes. Yeah, there's a guy Robespierre changed his mind about the death penalty a few times, as we know. He started out opposed to it, and then he was for it, and then they sentenced him to death, and he was probably against it. Uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> I, I I
1: can't imagine many people who who were sentenced. Uh, to death, thinking that it's a good idea. Yeah, I think that's
0: right. Um, all right, uh, Mr. Tiger. The um, throughout your uh, illustrious career, uh, you have uh, uh, argued some some important issues. Uh, I'm wondering, is there an issue, maybe some some case law uh, that you think the Supreme Court got wrong, maybe in the past decade. Well, how about in the past three months? There you go. Okay. We've got <laughs> you've got
2: Alito, Kavanaugh, and Gorsuch sitting up there now, and Thomas. And you read what they are writing about the capital cases that are now coming to the court. First on the issue of method of execution. First, they said that if um, if you don't like the way you're going to be executed, uh, why, it's up to you to propose a better one. They cuss that burden on the on the death row inmate. And so some death row inmate did. And they said, well, no, you, we, we didn't really mean that. They, they get to do it however they want. And then Gorsuch and Alita, I can't remember exactly which one of those folks it is. They're all the same. You could look back. Yeah. Over the last few weeks have criticized lawyers seeking last minute stays of execution to present things saying that this represents an injustice to the families of the victims. Now, that comes perilously close to mob rule. Yeah. We know what happens when you get the victim impact witnesses in these cases. They're trained by the prosecutors to go there screaming for death, crying out for vengeance, and right. so on. And I had to. I addressed that in, in talking to the jury in the Nichols case. I said, I feel like I'm standing here kind of turn back a tide of anger and vengeance. And now here's the Supreme Court of the United States, these justices, uh, taking up the cause. Right. All in the interest of kind of stampeding the process into taking another life in exchange for the one that's already gone. So that, I think, is reprehensible. And it's reprehensible because it represents a kind of rush-to-judgment attitude that I had thought was inconsistent with what it meant to be a justice of the Supreme Court of the United States, and it is inconsistent with the duty of such a a justice, then you find it in John Marshall and Justice rebuking Thomas Jefferson, and Jefferson's own appointee to the Supreme Court, Justice Johnson, rebuking Jefferson and his attorney general for a a rush to judgment uh, attitude. And in a world in which the executive branch is spinning out of control, I'm beginning to wonder about whether the court is going to step up and and play its role. Uh, I know this is a long answer, but I was I was gratified that John Roberts came to the defense of my son, uh, who had issued the order about mig- the migrant rights on the border, saying there's no such thing as an Obama judge. But yeah. um, this is this is perilous. What we do as lawyers is uh, is being endangered by the people that are supposed to listen to us before they decide.
0: The uh, one of our speakers uh, at this uh, Rusty Duncan conference that we're that we're uh, sitting at um, is an appellate lawyer, Janie Misselli Wood, and she said that the uh, courts of appeals are, are basically just conviction defense courts. You know, meaning that they're trying to create ways uh, to to back the state's play uh, and, and affirm convictions when you know it's just not fair. They're just eroding fairness um, certainly for individuals charged with crimes um, and I as you're speaking I'm just I'm just shocked at the the magnitude of that you know even extending up to the highest court in the land the um, you know what are, are do you have any um, well not necessarily advice but what what can we do as young lawyers who are who are in the trenches fighting at the trial court level Keep uh,
2: fighting. call yeah. it Call it like it is. Stand up and and say it, um, because this has happened. This sort of thing has happened at other periods in American history. What lawyers do we celebrate? We celebrate the lawyers uh, who, in the course of a career, were held in contempt a time or two uh, for having stood up and stood and and talked to the judge. I'll tell one story about this. We had individual voir dire in the Nichols case, and we had one juror, a very interesting person, and I was talking to him and he said had the idea that you know he was hoping there could be a computer program you could tell whether a witness was telling the truth or not telling the truth and so I took him up on it I just wanted to see what he thought about that and Judge Mace interrupted me he said oh this is nonsense this is uh, I don't want to hear any more of this this has nothing to do with this case Mr. Ty. you stop that line and sir this, this we don't want to talk about that and we've, we've finished Far dear and the juror left the room and I stood and I said your honor I want you to call a juror back and I'd like you, I think your tone and content of what you said to him was inappropriate. Uh, I want you to apologize to him. And I ask that you apologize to me in the presence of the juror so that everybody's clear about this. And he, he got red in the face and left the bench. Came back 10 minutes later and he did it. Now, why did he do it? Well, Mates was a pretty good judge, but he knew that by calling him on the record in that way, now there's an issue that might arise if there's an eventual appeal. Best to deal with it right now. Sure. So that's, in the trial court, that's clearly what we need to do. And there are historical examples we can try. In the appellate courts, um, we just have to keep doing our job. Remember, who, who reads our brief first? The law clerks. And they, you know, Chesterton said of the English judges, they're not cruel, they just get used to things. Well, the law clerks haven't got used to things yet. Um, and I know maybe they want to take the next clerkship. But um, the, the, they can have a role in this. We just have to do our job better and better. Oof. It's, <laughs>
1: it's like, right. Um, so. Uh, yeah, I, I, well, I, I'm a little, I'm a little dumbfounded. I, I sit here and literally going, the the work that, uh, the everyday little things, matter. Um,
2: well, in 1966 or 67, if you refused induction into the armed forces, and you were then charged and went went to trial, the chances, the conviction rate was over 70 percent. And the sentences that people were getting were in the three- and four-year range. By 1971 or two, the conviction rate was in the high 30s, and the sentences were just over 12 months. What happened? Well, what happened was, first of all, there was this enormous sense that the war had become unpopular. But second of all, we had gone out a bunch of us. We had trained lawyers how to present the issues and try these cases. First case I ever argued in the Supreme Court. Was an issue that the court three years before had given the the, the bird to, um, but we won eight eight and a half to a half. Eight justices, but joined the opinion by Justice Douglas and Chief Justice Burger couldn't quite figure it out, but couldn't figure out any reason that he didn't want it to happen.
1: <laughs> okay, um, uh, getting close to wrapping it up. Uh, one last substantial question. If there were one aspect of the law, and if you, have to, if you have to give us more than one, that's fine, but if there's one aspect of the law that you would change uh, today, if you had the, the authority, what would it be?
2: Abolish the death penalty. Why? Well, because it's inherently savage and unjust, and the pursuit of it has resulted in the distortion of the system of trials, jury argument, appeals, post-conviction, it is hard to think of another aspect of the system that calls itself criminal justice that has done more harm to the basic ideas that we ought to have about an enlightened system of enforcing the law.
1: Can't argue with that. All right, two, two more questions. Uh, and the, these are for fun. We ask everyone, uh, what is your favorite band or music, musician uh, that, that kind of, well, your favorite one?
2: I, you know that that's a tough one because I'm I'm never a band person. I like Jacques Brel. That's my favorite musician. Jacques Brel. He sings he sings great stuff, and um, so if that encourages you to go out and and buy the 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 records by that famous French Belgian singer,
0: well, I'd do so. Wonderful. And what about um, what about your favorite book? Maybe your, the current book you're, you're reading?
2: Mythologies of State and Monopoly Power is the name of the book that I just published. It deals <laughs> with the mythologies that we confront as human rights lawyers out there. Noam Chomsky wrote a jacket blurb, and uh, I'm afraid to make this offer, but if you buy it and like it... Um, Please post a review if you buy it and don't like it. Send it to me. I'll send you a book I don't like. There you go. <laughs> and where can everybody find that book? On Amazon.com. Perfect. The mythologies of State and Monopoly Power.
1: All right. And just to be clear, they can. Anybody who's listening to this and wanted to find more about you could find you. Obviously, probably they're going to find the the your inner ticking most easily at Tiger Bites. Is a tiger Bites? Uh, tiger
2: t- Blogs was it? Blog spotted tiger bites. I think I got a Facebook page. There's a Wikipedia entry. I did write a memoir called Fighting Injustice, uh, which I think is now out of print or at least the publisher isn't making it anymore. But stand by because I'm doing a second edition because I lived longer than I thought I would.
1: Excellent, <laughs> excellent. Well, thank you for your time. We greatly appreciate it. Uh, again, I'm Andrew Decker with Andrew Harris on Texas Criminal Defense.
0: All right, that was our interview with Michael Tiger. Uh, really appreciated the time we were able to spend with him. Andrew, what do you think, man? Well,
1: uh, I had a blast with him. We yeah. spent about an hour, obviously only recorded about 25 minutes. Right. If you out there ever have a chance to meet Michael, ask him why it's important to put the Do Not Disturb sign out at the hotel when you're working. Yeah, um, the story on that alone is amazing, um, and, and it's not his. Not sexually his to tell. inappropriate. Not, yeah, not at all. No. It, it, it's completely <laughs> legitimate, and you'll be like, dude, I'll never forget to put yes. the sign out again.
0: Yeah, that was a really great experience uh, for us. Um, you know, kind of like what we talked about in the intro. Uh, the guy is just constantly absorbing information. He's constantly, even to this day, after such a long career, is just always learning. Uh, and that's really a great lesson for us attorneys, don't you think? Truly,
1: and and I can honestly say I have re- I have increased the amount of reading I'm doing yeah. since we met with him a couple of months ago. This is we actually recorded it about two months ago, and I I have read more. I have consciously right. made a decision to read more, in part because of our being with him and with Michelle and with Jerry all within about a three day span. Yeah. It really did change. I've got to read more. It cannot hurt me.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, it's important to keep challenging ourselves as attorneys continue to, to understand the finer nuances of the law. So, y'all, thanks for joining us. We really hope you enjoyed that episode. Huge thanks to Michael Tiger. Really appreciated his time. If you have a chance, go check out his blog at Tiger Bites. Tiger Bites. Uh, he's got some really great stuff on there. He's written uh, a handful of books Just go pick one up and and learn from this guy like we did. Again, thanks for joining us. This has been another episode of Andrew and Andrew on Texas Criminal Defense. If you're listening to us on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts now, please leave us a rating and review. You can find us at texascrimdefense.com. Andrew Decker has actually started a Facebook page, so join us there.
1: You can find us on Facebook. Yep.
0: So we're all over the place, y'all. You can reach us directly at TexasCrimDefense.com. If you have any questions about the podcast or want to be a guest, please reach out, reach out out to us there if I could spit that out. That's and good English skills. Good yeah. Job. Andrew, what are we doing next month? So,
1: so the month of October, we are doing DWIs, um, and, and it's going to be two episodes. Both of them are actually kind of long. We were surprised. Yeah. But we realize there's just a lot to talk about from the beginning of a DWI through the end. Um, And we'll remind you in both those episodes, please don't drink and drive, um, but please listen to both episodes.
0: Yeah, a lot of great information up there uh, on those two episodes coming out soon. Uh, So stick with us. Uh, We hope you are getting some information out of these podcasts, and we really appreciate your continued support. Again for Andrew Decker, my name is Andrew Harris, and this is Andrew and Andrew on Texas Criminal Defense.